This week, REARG examines potential impact of CERTA decision on pending Encora up-tier bond exchange, GWG Holdings files for Chapter 11, Johnson & Johnson and Endo Pharmaceuticals reach settlements in opioid litigation. Hello and welcome to the REARG podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distressed and in bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's Deep Dive, we offer a webinar replay from January, where the REARG team provides an overview of the No Surprises Act's provisions, including the rule shaping implementation of the law's independent dispute resolution mechanism, as well as a discussion of the law's potential impact on multiple healthcare subsectors with profiles of specific companies. It's Friday, April 22nd. U.S. District Judge Catherine Fila's recent decision in the suit challenging the CERTA Simmons June 2020 non-prorata up-tier loan exchange could provide additional ammunition to future up-tier exchange challengers, including non-participating bondholders reportedly gearing up to challenge the pending INCRA up-tier bond exchange. However, Judge Fila's largely pro-minority lender ruling is likely to be of limited applicability for bondholder challengers because of certain key differences between bank and bond debt documents. Reorg examined the potential impact of Judge Fila's CERTA decision on the INCRA minority bondholders' anticipated challenge to the up-tier exchange transaction in light of such differences. In particular, the CERTA plaintiff's breach of contract and implied covenant claims are both effectively premised on a pro-rata sharing provision unique to credit agreements and not typically contained in bond indentures. The CERTA decision is likely to have limited applicability to a challenge to the INCRA up-tier bond exchange. As reported by Reorg, according to sources, the Aiken-Gump-led group of INCRA minority bondholders is expected to center its challenge on INCRA's solvency and on the fact that the Aiken group had been willing to provide cheaper secured debt financing of about $200 million within the permitted debt baskets. GWG Holdings filed for Chapter 11 protection in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas on Wednesday, April 20th. GWG is a Dallas-based financial services firm with secondary life insurance assets and passive equity interests in independent non-affiliated entities that operate in the alternative asset and epigenetic spaces. The company says it believes it has valuable, although presently illiquid assets that given time should yield substantial recoveries for the debtors and their stakeholders, but it has been unable to access the capital markets beginning in April 2021. The debtors say they seek to negotiate a Chapter 11 plan that would restructure their capital structure to maximize the value of the policy portfolio and their investments in the Beneficent Co. Group LP or Ben LP and Foxo Technologies. The debtors say the realization of these interests would form the primary funding mechanism for the debtors' restructuring. At the first day hearing on April 21st, counsel for Ben LP informed the court that Ben LP is subject to a letter of intent that would describe $3.3 billion in value to Ben, which would equate to $1.4 billion of value for the debtors' equity interest. The company also says it may explore two new business ventures as part of shaping its ultimate reorganization. One is the establishment of a new company called Basin Asset Management, a life settlement management firm through a co-investment with a strategic partner. Debtors have identified a lead investor that could assist with this venture. The company is also pursuing the development of Basin RE, a Bermuda Monetary Authority licensed life insurance company. The debtors say that over time, significant synergies between Basin Asset Management and Basin RE can be leveraged for the benefit of both projects' ultimate value. At the first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isger approved $10 million in interim dip financing after the debtors negotiated a modified proposal with dip agent National Founders. The dip lender agreed to reduce the $18 million interim draw to $10 million in response to concerns raised by the judge, including that the debtors only need $6.2 million in incremental liquidity in the first three to four weeks of the case, according to their budget. 
And after alternative asset manager Vita Capital made a $6.2 million competing dip proposal in open court. Vita's counsel said Vita's larger goal is to purchase GWG's entire portfolio at an attractive price for all stakeholders. Letters first day papers described the National Founders Dip as an 11th hour proposal that consists of new money commitments for new money term loans not to exceed in the aggregate $65 million plus any discretionary dip over advance. This week included a number of settlements and orders in various opioid trials across the country. Johnson & Johnson announced on Monday, April 18th, that it reached a $99 million settlement of opioid claims with the state of West Virginia and its participating subdivisions. Prior to the start of an opioid MDL bellwether trial, Endopharmaceuticals and Par Pharmaceutical reached an agreement in principle to settle the opioid claims asserted by San Francisco. Endo said in a statement to Reorg that it would pay the city of San Francisco $10 million to combat the opioid crisis. Endo also reached a settlement with the state of Alabama for a $25 million lump sum payment to be paid this year. Separately, the Tennessee Court of Appeals reversed a trial court judge's order denying a motion for recusal by Endo's wholly owned subsidiaries, Endo Health Solutions and Endo Pharmaceuticals, in litigation pending in the Circuit Court for Cumberland County, Tennessee, and remanded the case for transfer to a different judge. The Tennessee Court of Appeals also vacated the trial court judge's order imposing sanctions on Endo for alleged discovery violations, including the entry of a default judgment on liability. Top Red Stories this week included affiliates of conspiracy-oriented media company InfoWars file Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas, UMB Bank files complaint with New York Court as successor trustee against Intralot, challenges 2021 notes exchange offers as contravening 2024 notes indenture, claims fair market value obligations not followed, DBMP certainteed withdraw motions for reconsideration of ruling denying dismissal of Texas two-step substantive consolidation action, Supreme Court hears oral argument in Siegel v. Fitzgerald UST fee increase case. Justice addresses uniformity requirement, potential remedies. Now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Taw from Los Angeles on this Friday, April 22nd. Here's the week ahead. On Monday, April 25th, a multi-month trial will kick off in the Northern District of California Federal Bellwether Opioid Litigation, followed by the City and County of San Francisco. District Judge Charles Breyer will be presiding. Trial is expected to last through July 28th. The Malincrod debtors will be in court also on Monday for an extension of the termination of their authority to use secured creditors' cash collateral to May 30 from April 30, with or without creditor consent. They say they need an extension given that their confirmed plan may not go effective until after April 30th. On Tuesday, April 26, Judge Karen Owens will take up several matters in the Alto Michael cases, including a second hearing on the debtor's proposed assumption of what they say is a critical power purchase agreement with Minera Las Palombras and a related motion to enforce the automatic stay. At the first hearing, the judge ordered additional briefing on whether the court may authorize an assumption without having personal jurisdiction of MLP. Purdue will have two hearings this week, first on Wednesday, April 27th, when the debtors will seek an extension of the preliminary injunction to until 30 days after the Second Circuit issues a decision in the consolidated appeals of Judge Colleen McMahon's decision overturning the confirmation order and third-party releases of the Sackler family. The Second Circuit, in turn, will hear oral arguments in the consolidated appeals two days later on Friday, April 29th. There will also be oral arguments in Puerto Rico on Thursday, April 28th, specifically before the First Circuit in several appeals of the Commonwealth's Title III Plan of Adjustment. The appeals challenged various aspects of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's confirmation order and findings of fact and conclusions of law. As for earnings, this week they will be reported on Wednesday, April 27th by Hertz and Community Health Systems, and Thursday, April 28th by PBF Energy and Peabody Energy. 
That's it for me on this official Worldwide Earth Day, focusing on the need for environmental protection. This annual event dates back to 1970, particularly after a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara in Central California, just about two hours away from Los Angeles. That spill prompted then-Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson to collaborate with conservation-minded Republican Congressperson Pete McCloskey of California to organize a nationwide action-oriented Earth Day, which had the participation of 20 million people, or 10% of the U.S. population at that time. This first Earth Day led to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the passage of several first-in-kind environmental laws by the end of that year. This year's Earth Day theme of Invest in Our Planet emphasizes that this is the moment to change it all, the business climate, the political climate, and how we take action on climate. Now back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we offer a webinar replay from January where the REARG team provides an overview of the No Surprises Act's provisions, including the rule-shaping implementation of the law's independent dispute resolution mechanism, as well as a discussion of the law's potential impact on multiple healthcare subsectors with profiles of specific companies. Today, we will discuss the No Surprises Act rollout in 2022. I am Adam Rhodes, Senior Distressed Debt Analyst for America's Core Credit by REARG. And joining me today on today's webinar are Kevin Eckhart, Senior Legal Analyst, and Simran Ball, Corporate Credit Analyst, both for America's too. Please note if, if you, that if you'd like access to this webinar again, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours for Reorg subscribers. Today, we will provide an overview of the No Surprises Act rollout in 2022 its business effects on select companies, and its related litigation challenges. We will answer questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. Kevin, whose birthday is today, will begin by walking through the general issues surrounding surprise billing. Let's get started. Yeah, next slide, please. Um, just a little quick look at the agenda uh, for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'll go into the sort of introduction and the issues that prompted the passage of the No Surprises Act, and that give you a sort will give you a sort of forward look at at what the issues are facing companies in the provider space uh, that we'll be talking about today. We'll talk about the uh, agency regulations and the implications of those regulations that followed the No Surprises Act, because that's where um, the litigation is, and that's sort of where the rubber hits the road practically for these companies. Um, Adam and Simran will go through the company overviews, Envision Healthcare, Acumen, and Multiplan. Then I'll come back again to talk about the lawyer stuff with uh, the regulations and litigation challenges there too, and we'll move on to the Q&A. Next slide, please. Um, first, uh, let's talk about what the surprise billing issues are for those of you who may not be 100% familiar with what's been going on over the last couple of years. And all of the statements here are from briefs filed by the federal agencies regarding the purpose of the surprise billing statute. Um, basically, the, the federal agencies and the, the advocates of the surprise billing acts, um, the, those proponents, they've been arguing that the cost difference between receiving care from an in-network versus an out-of-network provider can be substantial. And of course, anyone who's ever had health care that was covered by insurance can attest to this, um, especially if they've been to an emergency room and treated by an out-of-network provider at an in-network facility, which is, is the 
the paradigm situation we're talking about today. Emergency physicians and anesthesiologists receive a flow of patients based on individuals electing care at a hospital. And as, as the federal agencies put it, that volume will be the same regardless of whether the physician is in or out of network. And because that volume does not depend on pricing um, in specialties where people show up and they don't have any choice of who to treat them in or out of network, uh, going out of network frees the providers to bill patients at essentially any rate they choose. And if they're able to bill out of network, they have extraordinarily high charges compared to other doctors. And this is sort of the big point that um, how the feds view this and, and the proponents of the No Surprises Act is that there is a market failure here. Um, that's the exact term they use in their briefs, that this is a situation where market choice is irrelevant. Um, patients show up to the emergency room, they get assigned a doctor or they go to do a surgery with their in-network doctor and he picks an out-of-network anesthesiologist um, or an out-of-network anesthesiologist is assigned, there is no pricing pressure here because the patient never gets to make that choice and thus can't choose in-network versus out-of-network. And again, the Fed's position um, is that private equity-owned providers in these areas have taken advantage of this market failure to bolster their profits. Um, this phenomenon of surprise billing has inflated the cost of network care, the feds say, because many providers have simply refused to negotiate for fair in-network rates with the awareness they could fall back on the option of demanding much higher out-of-network payments. In other words, the policy idea was if you can collect whatever you want as an out-of-network provider and nobody has the choice to turn you down because they're a patient that's being put under for surgery or because they show up for emergency care, why would you ever go in network um, when you could stay out of network and get paid as, as at much, much higher rates? So that's the sort of policy framework um, that the No Surprises Act was designed to remedy. Um, I'll, move, I'll send it over to Adam real quick and he'll walk you through the statute itself and how it, uh, how it tries to address these issues. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, the NSA was passed with bipartisan support on December 21st, 2020 in conjunction with the 2021 Omnibus Spending Bill. Uh, over the course of 2021, the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, Treasury, and the CMS, among other agencies, issued three separate interim final rules, providing additional implementation guidance for the law. The second interim final rule issued on September 30th has garnered the most attention. This rule implements provisions related to the NSA's independent dispute resolution or IDR process. The IDR governs the process to resolve differences between payers and providers and the applicable amount for an NSA-related bill. Finally, the law became effective at the start of this year on January 1st. Let's get started uh, with a general overview of the law itself. Uh, next slide, please. The purpose of the No Surprises Act, um, as Kevin mentioned, is to eliminate surprise bills, or also referred to as balanced bills, received by patients under certain circumstances. Historically, in these circumstances, insured patients have faced surprise medical bills over and above any insurance-related payments. The NSA requires private health plans to cover these out-of-network claims and apply in-network cost-sharing with insured patients. Additionally, for self-paying or uninsured patients, the law requires that providers disclose good faith estimates 
to these consumers. We will spend nearly all of our time today discussing the balanced billing restrictions under the law. The law addresses three significant sources of surprise bills where patients have limited ability to choose providers. Number one, emergency care at an out-of-network provider. Two, non-emergency care for an out-of-network treatment at an in-network facility. This would include care from an out-of-network outsourced physician at a hospital that contracts with your health plan. And finally, the law applies to air ambulance services. There are, however, certain exceptions to the protections under the law. Out-of-network providers can balance bill patients for non-emergency services to the extent that the provider properly provides notice to the patient and receives their written consent to waive their rights. If the procedure is scheduled over 24 hours prior to the applicable care, the provider must deliver a notice to the patient at least 72 hours before the procedure. If the appointment is made within the 72-hour window, the provider must furnish a written notice the day of the appointment at least three hours before the services are provided. This provision does not apply, however, to what the law refers to as ancillary services, such as radiology, anesthesiology, pathology, and other services. While the law applies to air ambulance services, it does not provide balance billing protections for ground ambulance services. Let's move on to take a closer look at the NSA's provisions to determine cost sharing amounts on the next slide. As mentioned before, the No Surprises Act requires any insured patient cost-sharing payments for the NSA-related services to apply in a manner consistent with in-network claims. So specifically, patient payments for these claims would count towards in-network deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums as if the service or item was provided by an in-network provider. To the extent that patients are billed over and above these amounts by providers, the law specifies a maximum $10,000 penalty for each violation. The regulation provides for the cost sharing amount from an NSA related charge to be what the law, excuse me, the law calls the recognized amount. This is a tiering of applicable amounts. First, if an all payer model applies to the specific charge, excuse me, then that is applied. Next, if there is an applicable specified charge amount under state law, then that is applied. If neither of those are the case, then the total cost sharing amount is the lower of the billed amount or the qualifying payment amount, which is also called the QPA. The QPA is generally the plan or issuer's median contracted rate for the applicable items and services in the geographic area where the item or services are delivered. The September rule says that the QPA should reflect standard market rates arrived at through typical contract negotiations and therefore should be a reasonable out-of-network rate under the best circumstances. As Kevin would later discuss, the presumption that the QPA is the median in-network rate under the Independent Dispute Resolution or IDR process has prompted significant provider-related litigation and pushback from members of Congress. For air ambulances, the cost-sharing amount is the lesser of the billed amount and the QPA. On the next slide, Kevin will walk through the NSA's IDR process. Thanks, Adam. Uh, so here is where, where the NSA really affects all these providers. You have no balance billing, so um, they're not able to bill the patients for a lot of the, the charges, the portion of the out-of-network charges that they're making that the patient can't choose. Again, they're trying to limit this to areas where the patient doesn't have the market power to 
pick an in-network uh, provider and otherwise picks an out-of-network provider. And then you have the cost-sharing situation between the providers and the, ins the payors, generally insurers and, and health plans. And the way that will be resolved is the NSA creates what they call baseball arbitration. And that's actually a, a term of art for the kind of arbitration that they use in baseball contractual disputes to resolve out-of-network rate disputes between providers and payers. So how this works is if there is a dispute, invoice is sent to the insurance company by the provider. Insurance company says, we won't pay that, uh, that invoice. They get together after 30 days notice and negotiation periods, and they select an arbitrator to decide. And the way it works is that each side proposes the rate they think is fair for the particular service for the air ambulance ride or the anesthesiologist's assistant with surgery. And the arbitrator has to pick one of those numbers. He can't go in between them um, or, or otherwise sort of invent a reasonable rate. Um, the factors that the arbitrator is supposed to consider are set forth in the statute. And the first one is the qualifying payment amount which Adam just touched on a second ago. And the, the legal definition of that is the median of the contracted rates recognized by the particular payor, the insurer or health plan for the same or a similar item or service that is provided by a provider in the same specialty and provided in the geographic region. So generally, if you've got Blue Cross Blue Shield as the insurer, the QPA will be the median of the rates that they will pay to providers in their network in that specialty, say an anesthesiologist, and in that geographic region. And that, that's left to be defined by the regulations, but say, you know, South Florida. Um, and it's a little different for air ambulance providers and for other, uh, other out-of-network providers. Um, the, to, the, to the feds, this is supposed to be a reasonable proxy for an in-network payment rate. Again, the idea is to discourage providers from remaining out of network so they can charge escalated um, charges for these non-market transactions by imposing the QPA, the in-network median rate on them um, that the insurer prefers. But the provider can also uh, justify adjustments to the QPA um, in front of the arbitrator by showing additional information. And that's how the statute provides for these factors. And that's, that'll, that's important when we talk about the litigation. There is QPA and then additional information. And the additional information is level of training experience quali and quality of outcomes, market share of the provider or insurer, the complexity of the service, the provider or insurer's good faith efforts to enter into network agreements. So you can see how all of this has um, the, especially those that last um, that last element has a vaguely pro payor vibe to it, and and of course the providers have seized on that in the litigation that we'll discuss later. Um, but it's all about trying to equalize out of network and in network rates for um, these particular kinds of services where the patient can't choose between out of network and in network. Next slide. So. The way the, the statutory and regulatory framework, the statute directs the agencies to establish by regulation the dispute resolution process based on those factors. So to set up a system for selecting and qualifying arbitrators um, and to set up some kind of framework for how the arbitrations will proceed. 
the statutory deadline for the agencies, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, the Department of the Treasury, and the Office of Personnel Management, all the agencies whose statutes are affected by the No Surprises Act, to promulgate those rules was December 27th, 2021. Three months early, they issued the second of three interim final rules, and this is the one that is going to be the subject of litigation and has caused so much heartburn in the provider community. Um, under that September 2021 interim final rule, the arbitrator must select the provider or payer, payer offer closest to the QPA unless credible information shows the QPA is materially different from the appropriate out-of-network rate or if the offers are equally distant from the qualifying payment amount, but in opposing directions. According to the providers, this basically sets up the payor, in, the payor QPA, their median in network rate for a particular service in the area as a presumption, which they are then put on a burden to overcome using credible information of materially different um, factors such as experience, um, whether it's a teaching hospital, whether that what I mentioned about whether they've negotiated, the payor is negotiated in good faith to reach an in-network agreement um, and the monopoly power of the payor. Presumably they would argue that if an insurer has the whole market, that the QPA is too low. The arbitrations are set to begin in April, 2022, though in the litigation, and again, we'll, we'll come back to this after we discuss the economic implications of the system that is in place that the providers have challenged, but remains um, effective for now. They have, have asked to stay that, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. The concern for the providers is, again, the use of the QPA as a proxy for median in-network rates results in dramatically lower out-of-network rates, because we know those are higher than in-network rates, and lower out-of-network rates would then allow payors to drive down in-network rates via negotiation. So if a, if a provider and a payor have an arbitration, the arbitrator picks the median in-network rate, the QPA, um, the provider, the payor then has a lot of leverage to drive the provider into in-network um, by reducing their out-of-network payments. Um, the other, and then that would, of course, when you lower the in-network, that lowers the QPA, and that would then lower the out-of-network rates decided in arbitration. So it's a sort of feedback loop where out-of-network rates are driven and in-network rates are driven lower and lower. And that, that's why we're talking about the financial effect of these, these regulations and the NSA, also the, the fact that they can't balance bill and aggressively collect from patients. That's why we're going to go into the economic uh, issues, which Adam and Simran are going to handle. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Adam. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Kevin. So REORG covers numerous companies in multiple healthcare subsectors that could be affected by the NSA regulations. Uh, in the outsourced physician subsector, subject to information flow, we cover private filers, Envision Healthcare, and Team Health. In the hospitals and surgery center space, REORG covers community health and surgery partners. It's possible that these providers could face tougher payer contract negotiations due to the NSA regulations. In ancillary services, REORG covers publicly traded Acumen, which focuses on radiology and oncology services. On the 
air ambulances side, rear covers, private filers, air methods, and global medical response. And finally, in payer-related services, we cover publicly traded multi-plan. Today, we'll profile Envision, Acumen, and Multiplan. With that, I will turn it over to Simran Ball and he will walk through Envision. Thanks, Adam. First of all, as a disclaimer, Envision Healthcare uh, is a private company. And as a result, we are working only with information provided to us. That information being Q1 and Q2 2021 financial and supplemental financial statements. So Envision operates through two business segments, physician services and ambulatory services. Physician services accounted for 83% of Q2 net revenue, while ambulatory services accounted for 17% of Q2 net revenue. The physician services segment includes the company's hospital-based and non-hospital-based physician staffing business where the company provides outsourced physician services in multiple specialties to hospitals, ambulatory service centers, or known as ASCs, and other healthcare facilities, primarily in emergency medicine, anesthesiology, radiology, hospitalist medicine, and women's and children's services. On the other hand, the ambulatory services segment acquires, develops, owns, and operates ASCs and surgical hospitals in partnership with physicians, which is usually through joint ventures or JVs. ASCs are medical facilities that provide outpatient or same-day surgery. Uh, United Healthcare ceased to be uh, an in-network partner beginning in 2021 for Envision. This implies that the company has had a larger share of out-of-network claims since this event occurred in the beginning of 2021. Uh, United Healthcare is a market leader with 14.4% share of the United Health Insurance market, according to Stadista as of year end 2020. Moving on to the next slide. Here is Envision's capital structure as of June 30th, uh, 2021. Once again, to reiterate, uh, we do not have access to the financial information as of September 30th, 2021. However, uh, from Envision's Q3 2021 earnings call, we know that the third quarter, uh, Envision repaid about 36 million of, advance, of advances it received under the CMS Accelerated Advanced Payment Program, which Reorg essentially treats as a receivables loan, and we add into the capital structure. Uh, as of uh, Q3, uh, we know from the call that the company still owes approximately 71 million under that program. As you can see, Envision's term loans are trading at discounted prices. Um, the term loans are yielding around 12%. As of uh, June 30th, gross leverage was uh, 9.1 times and net leverage was 8.1 times. Also, liquidity was at 837 million. Now moving on to Envision's financials as of Q2 2021. Reorg adjusted EBITDA for the second quarter of 21 was 212.1 million compared with negative 71 for the second quarter of 2020. Reorg uh, nets out grant income, estimated impact from COVID-19 and other adjustments when calculating EBITDA, ultimately leading to a lower figure than the company reported uh, on their adjusted EBITDA number. Free cash flow after non-controlling interest distributions 
for the second quarter of 2021 was negative 52.4 million compared with a net, with a cash generation of 158.7 million for the second quarter of 2020. Uh, moving on to the next slide, we'll discuss the implications of the NSA uh, on Envision. Envision will be impacted by the NSA due to its exposure of out of network payers, which was less than 10% of Envision's commercial payers uh, revenue as per CEO Jim Rashton during the fourth quarter 2019 earnings call. However, as noted earlier uh, in an earlier slide, out of network claims likely, likely significantly increased since United Healthcare ceased to be an in network partner beginning in 2021. Even though the full scope of United Healthcare's partnership with Envision is not known, judging from the sheer size of United, uh, it will have a significant impact on Envision's payer mix, increasing its out-of-network claims. Additionally, Envision's high-priced business lines, such as uh, anesthesiology, will be adversely affected. Envision's ASC business is not expected to be meaningfully um, affected by the NSA. According to Ratchetin on the Q3 2021 earnings call, he believes that it could take up to two years for the legislation to be implemented, considering legal and regulatory actions. Now, moving on to Acumen. So Acumen completed the acquisition of Alliance Healthcare Services on September 1st, 2021. As of the completion, Acumen now runs a fixed site outpatient diagnostic imaging services uh, through a network of more than 200 owned and or operated imaging locations and outpatient radiology and oncology services and solutions to approximately 1,000 hospitals and health systems across 46 states. Acumen's imaging procedures include MRI, CT, PET, ultrasounds, x-rays, mammography, and other interventional procedures its healthcare services include what the company refers to as a full suite of radiation therapy and related offerings. Radiology accounted for about 80% of pro forma revenue, while oncology represents about 20% of pro forma revenue for the LTM period ended September 30th, 2021. Now moving on to Acumen's capital structure. As of September 30th, uh, a couple of things to highlight here, uh, as you can see, the secure notes are yielding about 9%, which is uh, notable during this environment. Uh, another thing, uh, Stone Peak uh, helped fund a sizable portion of the Alliance Healthcare Services acquisition, adding about 160 million of the unsecured Stone Peak debt that you, that you see. Proforma gross leverage is 8.2 times, while Proforma net leverage is 7.8 times, while using the company's midpoint Proforma adjusted EBITDA of 160, 160.6 million for the combined business. Uh, liquidity as of September 30th, 2021, was 110.9 million. Moving on to financials for Acumen. Uh, Q3 2021 reorg adjusted EBITDA was 17.3 million compared with 18 compared with 11.8 million for the third quarter of 2020. Q3 21 free cash flow after non-controlling interest distributions was 29.6 million compared with a cash burn of 6.1 million 
for the third quarter of 2020. Now let's take a look at the implications that the NSA will have on Acumen. In July 2021, um, the Radiology Society of North America published an article highlighting the RSA uh, would upend reimbursement rate negotiations between radiology providers and insurers, ultimately leading to unfavorable terms for providers for in-network cases. Additionally, uh, according to Radiology Business, uh, imaging advocates have expressed concern that establishing set reimbursement levels could disrupt negotiations and manipulate in-network rates. In accordance with the NSA, uh, patients are protected under the Act uh, for Emergency Services until they are stabilized. Once they are stabilized, the patient may either consent to be transferred to an in-network facility or physician, or voluntarily consent to continue to receive out-of-network services by signing a consent waiver that allows a provider to balance bill the patient. However, radiologists and other ancillary services providers may not use these consent waivers and must abide by the in-network payment policies of the act. Uh, continue to the next slide. During the second quarter 2019 earnings call, uh, when asked about the implications of the NSA, uh, C uh, CEO of Acumen, Acumen uh, Raj Shine Zion replied from the beginning, we have had Acumen a very clear strategy, which is basically do not say 100%, but likely 99% has to be in network. So that is not a threat to our business. Uh, while Acumen uh, will be the least directly impacted among the companies discussed today, uh, it might indirectly feel pressure in reimbursement rates if payers are willing to move out of network over time due to the NSA. So the American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association are alleging that Blue Cross Blue Shield, North Carolina, has already threatened to terminate agreements with providers because the interim final rules provide enough clarity to warrant a significant reduction in your contracted rate. Essentially, payers have additional leverage now to push back aggressively on reimbursement rate negotiations. And if the parties do not strike an agreement, then under the NSA, the payer would rather pay the median contracted rate in network rate anyways. With that, I'll turn it back to Adam and uh, he will walk you through Multiplan. Thanks, Simran. So far, we've only talked about some of the NSA's impacts on provider-related organizations. Multiplan is not an insurance company itself, but it provides services to payer companies. Large national insurance companies account for the vast majority of its revenues. The company's services mitigate the lack of transparency in actual prices paid for provider care versus the amount billed. Multiplan generated 92% of its LTM September 30th revenues through discounts, or it, as it calls them, savings from fee-for-service prices billed by healthcare providers. Just as an example, if a hospital billed a patient $1,000 for procedure, and if ultimately combined, the patient and its health plan pay $800 as a result of multi-plan services, then $200 of savings were achieved. Multi-plan would take a certain percentage of this savings. This is referred to as its take rate. In this example, if the health plan, excuse me, the health plan paid multi-plan 
$10 of the $200 in savings, this would represent a 5% take rate. And the LTM period ended September 30th. Multiplan processed approximately $119 billion of claims and identified approximately $21 billion of potential savings. These savings were achieved through leveraging the company's massive amount of claims data with certain technology and specifically its proprietary claims repricing engine, Data Eyesight. The company also generates savings through its preferred provider organization or PPO, under which MultiPlan contracts with 1.2 million providers for discounted prices. Finally, the company also, also generates savings for customers with its payment integrity services, where the company monitors claims and advocates for the proper provider service code for a procedure and its acuity. Multiplan merged with a Churchill-sponsored SPAC in October of 2020 in an $11 billion deal. Prior to that, sponsor Hellman Friedman privately owned the company. For more than a decade, the company was held by different iterations of private, private equity funds. The company generates significant free cash flow with EBITDA margins averaging 76% over the last four years, along with just 7% CapEx as a percentage of revenue during that period. As a function of its customers being composed of the large U.S. insurance companies, MultiPlan has significant customer concentration. Its top 10 customers represent approximately 80% of its revenue, and its top two customers in 2020 represented approximately 55% of revenue. The company's relationship with its top customer, United Healthcare, is an area of concern. Recent trial evidence and testimony from a former member of UHC's management in November reduced speculation that UHC might adversely alter its relationship with MultiPlan. Trial evidence included in an inter excuse me, included an internal UHC presentation that contemplated eliminating UHC's vendor relationship with MultiPlan and moving these services in-house. Let's take a look at MultiPlan's financials in the next slide. The company generated $338 million of free cash flow in the LTM period ended September 30th. Um, the company also, uh, as of last night's close, um, the, the stock had a 13% free cash flow yield. This compares with an approximate 7.7% yield on its OPCO unsecured notes and a 6% yield on multi-plan secured notes. Through 2017, MultiPlan has annually generated at least 75% adjusted EBITDA margins. With the company's high free cash flow conversion, any top line losses would meaningfully flow to cash. MultiPlan has paired this high cash conversion model with six turns of net leverage. Interest represents the company's largest cash expense. Let's take a look at MultiPlan's capital structure on the next slide. Um, including its fully drawn, excuse me, its fully undrawn $450 million revolver, MultiPlan had $675 million of liquidity on September 30th. And as mentioned before, it had six turns of net leverage along with nearly $5 billion of net debt. Let's dive into the specifics of the NSA's potential impact on MultiPlan. Multiplan's management has sent mixed signals regarding the magnitude of impact from the NSA. On the one hand, on the Q3 call, Multiplan's CEO said that the law is the most sweeping piece of legislation in its history. 
Then, however, he followed up that by saying that management does not believe that the changes will derive a meaningful impact from the company's claims volume. The then CFO, David Redmond, said that the NSA will not have a monstrous impact either positively or negatively on 2022 revenue. President and incoming CEO Dale White said that claims within the scope of the NSA have historically represented 10% to 12% of identified savings. Based on approximately $21 billion of potential savings identified by the company in the LTM period and a 5% take rate, White's statements imply a roughly $105 million to $126 million top-line hit on its traditional services. However, management expects that payer customers will still need multi-plan services to process NSA-applicable claims. White emphasized on the Q3 call that the NSA's qualifying payment amount will not function as a rigid payment standard since pay payers cannot force providers to charge or accept the QPA as fair payment. Multiplan intends to apply its expertise in helping payer customers adjudicate surprise bill claims. In December, the company announced plans to launch, quote, end-to-end -end surprise billing services that help with identifying surprise bills, calculating the QPA, arbitration, and settlement negotiations. Another impact from the NSA on multi-plan could be increased price transparency. The NSA requires independent dispute resolution entities to send monthly reports to the Department of Health and Human Services that inform quarterly public reports on payment determinations. Kevin will now go into detail on provider-related legal challenges to the NSA regulations. Right, and let me, as, just as a preface, let me mention, in addition to the No Surprises Act issues face, facing multi-plan, um, they are facing a lot of litigation, both by providers um, and, well, <laughs> it's largely providers over participating in price fixing. Um, notably, a, the liquidating trustee of the Verity Health um, Chapter 11 case, Verity Health was a chain of nonprofit hospitals in California that went into Chapter 11, failed to achieve a sale, went out of business, has accused multi-plan of elevating, of saving something like $10 billion in provider reimbursements in cahoots with insurers by publishing rates, advising insurers to take rates, and the insurers accepting those rates and then imposing them on providers. So the, the exposure there is in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for the company. Um, a number of these lawsuits are being brought. Sometimes they're brought against multi-plan. Sometimes they're brought against the insurance companies by providers. So we're keeping an eye on all of that litigation, including that the, the Verity case is currently pending in state court in San Francisco. So you can follow our litigation coverage topic um, to see further, uh, further coverage of these disputes. But moving back to the No Surprises Act, as I mentioned earlier, and as, as has been mentioned by Simran and, and Adam several times, the providers are very concerned about the QPA and how the federal agency regulations have provided for the QPA to be possibly, according to the providers, a presumption in these arbitration disputes, because that could drive down, um, dramatically drive down reimbursements for out-of-network care and also have a knock-on effect on in-network reimbursements in the negotiating process. Three federal court suits have been filed against the federal agencies challenging the QPA presumption. And I'm doing finger quotes because the feds disagree that there is a QPA presumption, but that's how the providers characterize it. 
Um, first, the Texas Medical Association has sued the Department of Health and Human Services in the, uh, that actually should be the Eastern District of Texas, apologies, in Tyler, Texas, um, which they believe is going to be a friendly venue. The Association of Air Medical Services, which is a trade group representing air ambulance companies, has sued the agencies in the District of the District of Columbia. And the American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association has sued HHS in the District of DC as well. Um, a number of, of individual providers are included as plaintiffs in those suits for standing purposes. And a number of provider groups have stepped in as amicus curiae um, to file briefs in support of the provider's position there. And uh, members of Congress have sent in letters, a group of six provider members of Congress. So physicians who are in Congress have provided letters on the provider side and other members of Congress, of course, have provided letters and amicus briefs on the side of the federal agencies. Each of the plaintiffs in these cases, the provider side, have filed motions for summary judgment for a determination that the interim final rule setting up the arbitration process and putting the QPA at the top of that process violates the statute, that it exceeds the authority provided under the statute, that it conflicts with the statutes, and that it was not properly promulgated procedurally under the Federal Administrative Procedures Act. The main argument the providers make is that the rule, again, improperly creates a rebuttable presumption that the QPA is the correct rate that arbitrators must choose in these out-of-network payment disputes. Um, they say, the providers say that this rule elevates the QPA over the other factors listed in the No Surprises Act for arbitrators to consider, such as the experience of the, the provider, the complexity of the situation. Again, those good faith negotiations and monopoly power of either side. Um, according to the providers, the QPA is just one of these factors. And that by putting that at the beginning and, and possibly the end of the inquiry, um, the agencies have violated the statute and the statute wins in any battle between the statute and regulations. Um, the, the providers have argued more broadly that because payors set the QPA, or putting the QPA at the top of the list for the arbitrator tilts the arbitration toward payors. As they put it, it puts a thumb on the scale for the payors. Uh, they point out that Congress considered legislative uh, approve uh, legislative proposals in the passage of the No Surprises Act that would have set explicitly set the median in-network rate, basically the QPA, as the rate for the arbitrators to choose, and those proposals were rejected by Congress. That as a matter of policy, they argue that patients will be harmed because insurers um, will be encouraged to narrow the network of providers available to patients and issue providers with higher costs because they can rely on the IDR process to press an unfairly low rate as they view it, the QPA. Um, they have also, as and I think Simran mentioned this, they've pointed out that insurers have already started to threaten to terminate agreements with providers um, because they feel like they can use the out-of-network status in the IDR process to impose a QPA on them anyway. Um, you don't need to get somebody in to get a physician in network in order to pay them in network rates, if you get into arbitration and the, the, the in network rate is effectively imposed on the out of network provider by the arbitrator. Of course, this is the, the flip side of what the payors have said, which is that 
the uh, in the, the federal agencies that the providers are avoiding being in network so they can stay out of network and charge more. It's basically they're saying that now the insurers can pull the same trick they, <laughs> they have been accused of. Um, let's move on to the next uh, slide, which is the agency's response. The agency has filed now in these litigations, the three district court proceedings, one in Texas and two in DC, cross motions for summary judgment setting forth their position. And it's a very broad position. They, they go beyond saying that the statute just authorizes them to put the QPA at the top of the arbitrator's process by saying that the whole point of the No Surprises Act was to reduce out of network rates. That the idea was that Congress by passing the NSA saw out of network rates for these involuntary providers were too high and wanted them down. That they didn't want to set up an independent fact-finding system to determine the proper rate. They wanted to push things toward in network. The act would not succeed in this goal, the agencies say, if arbitrations were to result routinely in payments greater than the median in-network payment, the QPA. In other words, their defense to putting the QPA at the top is to say the QPA um, is basically what Congress wanted, the in-network rate being imposed on out-of-network providers in non-market involuntary situations. Um, the QPA, they say, is the centerpiece of the No Surprises Act and not just one of those factors. They point out that in the statute, the QPA is listed, and then there are additional factors that include all those other, the experience and negotiations and market power and all that. Um, they, the agencies point out that the other factors, experience, market power, already are included in the QPA because that is a contractual in-network rate that the providers and the payors that are in network have negotiated and had in mind. You know, they had the opportunity to point out when coming to those median and network rates that they, this provider or that kind of provider or this geographic area um, was particularly expensive. The agencies have pointed out that the QPA may result in higher rates, that there may be circumstances when providers are getting paid more than uh, they're getting the QPA that is being paid in network is higher than what would otherwise be justified under the experience, the geographic region. In other words, the, the providers may have done a great job negotiating and they would lose the uh, network rate and they would lose the benefits of that negotiation. They point out that while Congress rejected ideas for um, the, the proposals that would have imposed the QPA in every case, Congress also rejected proposals that were made by the providers that would give the arbitrators unfettered discretion and would leave the QPA as just one of many factors. They also take a policy view and, and specifically attack the private equity ownership of the out-of-network providers um, that Ann and Simran talked about. They say the private equity owners, again, took advantage of a market failure, the lack of choice for these patients in emergency situations, avoided signing up for in networks in order to collect massive out of network payments and boost their earnings via surprise billing. They especially take aim at the air ambulances for doing this. Let's move on to the next slide. That is the end of our discussion on the, the litigation. Just to, just to give you an idea to wrap the litigation idea, all this again is at the summary judgment stage and uh, hearing and the next hearing is set 
It was just set uh, yesterday after we uh, got the slides done, so that's why it's not here. It will be held on February 4th in Tyler, Texas, in the Texas Medical Association. So we are going to be sending someone out there, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get you prompt coverage of that. I wouldn't expect an immediate ruling, but that may be the first uh, signpost in this litigation that would not bind the, the district courts, um, but would uh, provide some guidance as to whether these agency regulations are going to hold up. I guess, Adam, we move on to the questions now. That is right. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Uh, that concludes the slide portion of the presentation. We will now move over to the Q&A. So let's see what questions we have that have come in so far. Um, it looks like the first one is for Kevin. Um, it says, is it wrong to conclude that this law in practice will have no material impact given that the loophole available to providers by simply inserting brief opt-out slash consent language into the various new patient and financial responsibility disclosures patients already must sign before receiving care? Uh, many of these disclosures are given to patients electronically and they're prevented from striking the language. Yeah, that's it's an interesting point. Can, it used to be a clipboard that you get all those documents, and you're in the in the emergency room, and you just sign them, or you're you're consenting to a surgery, and you just sign all the documents. Now it's sometimes on an iPad or ahead of time by email or an app. And can they just put a checkbox in there that says, "Oh, by the way, you just waive all of your rights under the NSA"? And I think that that is unlikely to. I, certainly, it could blunt some of these effects in certain circumstances, but Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a 72-hour rule on this. You have to get those disclosures way in advance, and I'm sure um, there will be dispute over whether written consent is just checking a box on an iPad. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I, I wouldn't count on that um, based on the, the tenor of the statute and the intent of the statute. And if these regulations hold up, I don't think mass waivers, box top style waivers of rights under the No Surprises Act will be effective. And I mean, of course, you then also have circumstances where if the patient is unconscious when they come into the emergency room, then they have emergency surgery with an out of network provider. They're never going to have had that opportunity. Um, you could say, well, you know, you get get someone else to sign. It, it's it's not going to be probably as easy as just getting a, a form solution for them. Um, let me let me handle this one as well, Adam, because I think this one's a quick answer. Just to confirm that QPA is based off of the median and network rate of the payor involved, not the median rate of all payors. That's correct. It is the QPA for that provider, um, for, for that uh, payor in the particular geographic market. Um, and, and let me uh, let me throw one to you. Um, what Adam and Simran, maybe I think Adam, this one's for you. What do you think will be the ultimate financial impact of the No Surprises Act on multi-plan? Yeah, I think it remains to be seen. Um, my sense is that it will be a net negative for performance. Um, I had mentioned a potential $100 million to $125 million revenue hit on traditional savings just based on management's guidance of NSA related claims and the 5% take, take rate that they most recently disclosed. Um, I would think that immediately after the regulations go into effect, um, the company's in good shape to offset some of this by educating its customer base on navigating the QPA and the IDR process. However, I think ultimately um, some of that knowledge can be brought in house at its payer customers. 
And then the HHS quarterly IDR payment determination disclosures would likely be helpful in navigating the law for its customers in the future. Uh, additionally, these reports might shed some light on out-of-network payments on certain atypical uh, bill procedures. In general, I think um, further payment to build transparency in healthcare is not a good thing for multi-plan, and it has the potential to disintermediate probably um, some of its services. Let, let me answer this one. Someone asks, a couple of people asked about the start date for the arbitrations in April 2022, and I, I should I, I save this one because I saw these questions come up. The, the providers have asked for a stay of the, of the rules creating the arbitrations and therefore of the arbitrations themselves under those rules um, while the litigation is ongoing in these three cases, which could take some time. Um, you could have a stay if summary judgment isn't granted in the next few months in these cases and they go on to trial, there would be discovery and there would potentially be a bench trial on, on these APA issues. Um, that could be a long time. So you could have quite a while where those arbitrations are held off. Now the courts, the, the agencies have opposed that saying that um, basically on the merits saying that the no stay is, is merited because these guys don't have a case. Um, it's, it's probably, my suspicion is that at least one of the courts will freeze the arbitrations, probably Texas. Um, I would be surprised if all three of them rejected the idea. There is certainly bona fide arguments to be made on, uh, by the providers that these are invalid. So I think most likely April 2022, they will not actually begin. Um, that stay could be revisited at any time. I could be wrong on that. I am purely subjectively going by my experience with, uh, with regulation stays and other situations. Um, but I think that uh, it, it seems like at least one of those courts will push them off. And if one does and the other two don't, the agencies will probably still not commence. Um, if there's um, any possibility that, that that court could later try to strike down what happened while its stay was in place, but the other ones did. So in, in the end, I think the agencies will probably err on the side of caution as they often do in these cases. And uh, you saw it with even in very crucial situations like the CDC with litigation over uh, COVID regulations and cruise lines, generally they're pretty willing to put the rules on hold um, rather than risk going forward and then having the rules invalidated and having to go back and undo a bunch of things. So I think April 2022 is probably unlikely. Um, how long that lasts, um, the litigation could last. It, it shouldn't be a long, long litigation. There there could be resolutions in the next two to three months based on summary judgment. Everybody seems to believe that there are no material facts. This is a, a statutory um, decision. So we could see arbitrations happen late summer, um, third or fourth, late third quarter, early fourth quarter, a little, little too hard to predict. Um, that would be speculating. So um, we'll see, but um, I think there's probably gonna be a stay for a little while. Okay. Um, we have one here for Simran um, on Envision. Uh, what do you think was the impact of United Health ceasing to be a partner with Envision? Yeah. So, um, in relation to that question, I'd say uh, the impact, uh, the exact impact, is probably a bit difficult to decipher. But, but nonetheless, uh, it should have a significant impact, as I mentioned in my 
in my piece of the presentation. Uh, however, we can take sort of a top-down approach. Uh, we could try to calculate what percentage United Health uh, was as a percentage of commercial of Envision's commercial payer mix. So um, I noted earlier in one of the slides that uh, the CEO in a Q4 2019, he said that less than 10% of Envision's commercial payer uh, mix was out of network. So um, assuming that about 90% is in network and the fact that United Health makes about 14.4% of the US health insurance market, um, applying those percentages, we get approximately uh, 13% uh, was uh, how much United Health um, is a percentage of their commercial paramedics. And if you go further into it, uh, Envision, um, looking at their net revenues, only about 50% is from commercial payers. So um, putting everything together, United Health can make up about 6.5% of Envision's net revenues if you apply this sort of top-down approach. Um, but of course, um, uh, the actual implications are yet to be seen. Got it, thank you. Um, let, let me answer this one, Adam, because this is an issue that's come up. Do you think the Texas District Court and Fifth Circuit will be receptive to the TMA's argument, giving the growing skepticism around the Chevron doctrine. Um, this has come up in the pleadings in the case that the Chevron doctrine is basically puts a heavy burden of proof on parties challenging agency regulations to show that they were completely out of line with the statute um, so long as the grant of authority is explicit in the statute. This, this is a doctrine that for years has been used by agencies for to defend their regulations and, and again, to make it very difficult to overturn regulations. That uh, doctrine has been under attack by um, the current judiciary, which is not very agency friendly for um, a couple decades now. And a bunch of holes were punched in it for the CDC and COVID. And there are currently cases, um, one was already argued in front of the Supreme Court and another is coming up where parties have argued that the Chevron doctrine um, which was a judge-made doctrine, is no longer valid. Um, the, the agencies have pushed the Chevron doctrine, but they've also said, look, even if the burden is on us to show our regulations are valid, and, and, or, or if there is just, you know, everybody starts even and there's not this sort of thumb on the scale in favor of the agencies, um, the, the rules hold up. Um, we'll see. I think that the, the Supreme Court uh, probably won't have decided this by the time summary judgment is decided in the district courts. Um, and uh, so it probably won't affect the district courts. But if they do, obviously, if they do decide to throw the Chevron um, doctrine out the window in the Supreme Court, it's, it's a blow to the agencies. Um, it's not necessarily a death blow. It just sort of evens the, uh, the playing field between the two and the litigation as to who's right about what the statute means. Um, I think the agencies are already preparing for the Chevron doctrine not to be in place after the last 10 to 20 years of having it hammered at. But um, that, that'll be really interesting. Tough to say what the Supreme Court's going to do on that. We know they, they don't individually like the Chevron doctrine, but that doesn't mean they're going to throw it out. Got it. Thank you, Kevin. Um, looks like we have time for one more. Um, I'll grab this one. It says, do you think that United Health will leave multi-plan? Um, so I guess that's somewhat separate from the NSA, but in my opinion, um, I, I think it's 
a somewhat low likelihood. Uh, UHC and the other insurance companies can likely disintermediate certain of multi-plan services like the reference-based pricing tools to an extent. Um, that said, I think that multi-plan is in, is in an, probably an enviable position competitive-wise uh, with the amount of industry-wide da uh, claims data that it collects. Um, it, it seems pretty impossible to replicate this data. So I guess armed with this data and as neither an insurance company or provider, um, the company has a certain level of credibility to serve as a third-party referee in some of these payer-provider payment disputes. Um, I think that UHC will likely need to use these services probably going forward. But I, I guess like I talked about before, additional means of price to payment transparency, uh, potentially, uh, like we might see with the NSA's quarterly IDR report, does increase payers' ability to perform some of these functions in-house. Um, so uh, that's all we have left right now for questions. Um, as a well, reminder- We have a lot of questions left, but we're out of time. <laughs> yeah. So we'll gather them up and see if we can answer them in another one. Yeah, we'll reach out uh, independently um, to the extent we can if their names attached. Um, and then, so as a reminder, um, REORG is a global provider of credit intelligence, uh, data analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. If you are already a REORG subscriber, uh, please send any further questions you have on this, top, this or other topics to customersuccess at REORG.com. And remember, a replay with the slides will be available on the REORG media page within 24 hours. And a big thanks to everyone who joined, especially to Kevin, whose birthday is today, um, as well as <laughs> thank you, everyone else. Uh, thank you and have a good day. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.